welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through Mark chapter 9, verse 13. We don't have enough time in today's program to read the whole portion, so please get out your Bible and follow along. What did Messiah mean when he was talking about the gates of Hades? Why did Yeshua choose the area of Caesarea Philippi to reveal who he was and to reveal secrets of the kingdom? What were the disciples seeing when they saw Messiah meeting with Moses and Elijah? Was Messiah being too harsh when he said, Get behind me, Satan, to Peter? Why was the truth Messiah was trying to tell them so important? Are there paradigms we might not understand? If we let him, will Messiah help us to break through our false paradigms like he did with the disciples? Can he help us with seeing the kingdom? Stay tuned through to the end of today's program for Eliyahu Ben David's insight on these questions and more in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through Mark chapter 9, verse 13. And now, here's Eliyahu Ben David. What we're going to be discussing is this theme, seeing the kingdom. And these verses are actually very profound. They cover the portion of the book of Mark where Messiah actually reveals who he is and even goes beyond that, giving some of his disciples a vision of Messiah in glory. And we're going to see that in Mark 8, 27 through 9, 13, on seeing the kingdom. And you know, that's what I'm seeing as I'm looking at these verses, seeing the kingdom. And I'm seeing the Talmudim seeing the kingdom. And I think that's really exciting. At the beginning of these verses, it says, Yeshua went out with his disciples into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, we hear a lot of strange names as we go through the Gospels, but all of these places are significant. And some questions come to mind here. Why did Yeshua choose the environs of this place, Caesarea Philippi, to reveal who he was and to reveal secrets of the kingdom. 
Well, Caesarea Philippi is in the area of Mount Hermon. And we want to talk about Mount Hermon for a minute. The word Hermon means sacred mountain or a sanctuary, according to a couple of different sources. And in one place in the book of Deuteronomy, it's called Mount Sion with an S. Now, this is not the same as Zion. It's spelled differently. And it specifically says that Mount Sion is also called Hermon. And Sion means height, lofty, peak. It's referring to the tremendous height of Mount Hermon in relation to all the topography of the area. Mount Hermon lies on the modern-day Lebanon-Syria border. And it includes the contested Golan Heights. So we're talking about an area that figures prominently in our news right now. Right now, near this area, there are literally thousands of missiles trained on Israel by Israel's enemies. There have been firefights very close to this, in this area, and this is very much an active area right now in things that we've seen in the news and things having to do with Israel. Mount Hermon is indeed a high mountain. It rises 9,232 feet at its highest point. And for ancient Israelites and others, it seemed as if Mount Hermon actually went up and touched right into heaven. Very interesting. The book of Enoch talks about Mount Hermon, and we've discussed this before. I've talked a lot about this mountain in the Daniel Seminar. And this is the mountain, according to the book of Enoch, where the angels that sinned, the sons of God, came down and fermented a rebellion not only among the angels, but also among the people. And the reason for this is that they saw that the women were beautiful. And so they forsook their heavenly dwelling and came down to take women for themselves. It says they descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. So this mountain is a very special place. It is actually where this rebellion in the earth was first fomented by the angels that sinned on this very mountain. This is where they came down. Enoch also says that their women became pregnant and bare great giants. When men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And this simply gives us more information on things that the book of Genesis already talks about. And what it's telling us is about the Nephilim, the offspring of the angels that sinned and the human women, who were literally giants, much larger than ordinary men. And 
very vicious creatures. Well, in the time of the invasion of Canaan, this region comes up in the Scriptures. We know during the flood, these angels that sinned departed back into spirit form. The Nephilim, of course, would have been wiped away as physical beings by the flood, although their spirits lived on in the form of demons who were tormenting people in the time of Yeshua and continue to do that today. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. We took the land at the time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, Sihon and Og, who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. So we have this whole area stretching from the Arnon to Mount Hermon. So it includes this area we're talking about today. And this region eventually was given to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh after the Amorites there were destroyed, and these powerful kings, Sihon and Og, were destroyed. It says that Og, the king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the Rephaim. The Rephaim were a branch of the Nephilim. In other words, they were among these giants who descended from the sons of Yahweh. So obviously, this evil mixing of angelic beings and humans was reinstituted at some point after the flood. And the Rephaim were a part of that. And it says of Og, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. And at that time, it was still actually there for people to see. It says, isn't it in Rabbah of the children of Ammon? So it was a bit of an oddity. People went to actually see this massive iron bed, nine cubits in length, that's about 14 feet. Now, what kind of a being sleeps on a bed that's 14 feet long? A giant, right? Nephilim. Right in this area of Mount Hermon where this first happened. So I think this is very significant. What we see about Mount Hermon in this area is it has a very close connection with the angels that sent, and that they even chose to reinstitute this immoral connection with human beings back in this same area as false worship. We'll get into that uh, momentarily. Here's a picture showing Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was located about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee on a terrace at the foot of Mount Hermon on its southern slope, about 1,150 feet above sea level. This area is located in the modern-day Golan Heights. 
So this is the area that we are talking about. Already, it's up there. Already, it's higher. But there's a long way still to go, of course, to get to the top of Mount Hermon. So this is the area that we're talking about. Now, this area, Caesarea Philippi, had another name. It had really more than one. Caesarea Philippi was known as Panius. Panium, and today it's known as Banius. This is the Arabic word. They don't have a P in Arabic, so they substitute a B. But all of this is talking about the false god Pan. And Pan is pictured from Greek mythology as a satyr. That is a hybrid human and goat-like creature. And in a number of places in scriptures, it talks about these beings. For instance, in Isaiah, it says, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, satyrs shall dance there. And Gill's commentary explains this, says, half men and half goats, the Targum, Jachi, and Kimchi, interpret it of devils here. And so the Septuagint version and those that follow it, with this agrees the account of mystical Babylon in Revelation 18.2. So these beings, these satyrs, in some way represent devils. That is, the angels that sinned. And this is why they're depicted as having this lustful appetite for the daughters of men. Let's go on a little bit more. And Genesis 6-2 talks about this. God's son saw that men's daughters were beautiful, and they took any that they wanted for themselves. So this is what the place is named after. Panius, that's the Greek name, or Panium is the Latin name. It's named after Pan. So I think you're getting the picture. We're talking about an area that is really the very beginning of demonic worship in the earth in its worst possible form. And this is the place, amazingly, where Messiah chose to reveal who he was and reveal the kingdom. You know, in the Daniel Seminar, I teach about two mountains. That's what this is all about, isn't it? Because we have the one mountain, Mount Hermon, as fomented by these angels that sinned, starting a new kingdom with themselves at the pinnacle of that kingdom. And Mount Hermon, in a sense, represents that. And then, of course, we have Messiah, the kingdom of Yahweh. And Messiah chose this area to reveal himself as the king, which I think is a very in-your-face kind of move towards these demonic spirits. Well, let's see some more. 
On the way, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Notice that it's Messiah that's choosing the time to get into this. He's choosing the place, he's choosing the time, he's choosing the topic. And he asks, who do men say that I am? And we have the answers. John the Immerser, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. In other words, you're a prophet like all the others. But he wasn't happy with that. He didn't want to just hear, okay, what have you heard out there about me? So he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Was Peter the only one that knew? Probably not. It's just Peter was always the first one to speak. And sometimes that was good and sometimes not so good. But at this point in his life, okay, Peter did not have a great deal of discretion. And so he always wanted to be the guy to speak. And in this case, he was commended for that. Now, there's a little bit more about this in Matthew. And Yeshua answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. I also tell you that you are Peter, meaning a little piece of rock. And on this rock, meaning a mass of rock, I will build my assembly. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, this is all very interesting. First of all, we see that Peter understood that Yeshua was the Messiah by revelation. And I think that's important. Some people think that Messiah was telling Peter that he was the rock on which the assembly would be built. But as you look at the meaning of the names, you do see a play on words. But he's basically telling Peter, you're a little piece of the bigger rock. It's Messiah that is the rock mass. And Peter is a piece of that, as are other believers. And he says, I will build my assembly on that rock mass. That is, on himself as the Messiah. He would build his assembly. And he says, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, I think we all really like how that sounds, don't we? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. What is he actually talking about in these verses? I will build my assembly, he says. What is his assembly? It's the Messianic assembly of renewed Israel. Now here, in many Bibles, you have the word church. And even using the Bible, the word church refers to Israel. It's called the church in the wilderness. But actually, a substitution is made of this word church. Because in other parts of the Bible, the same word is translated as congregation or assembly, referring usually to Israel as the assembly of Yahweh. And so 
it's really kind of false to assign this separate word to something else. And, of course, that has to do with uh, maintaining uh, theology, a certain theology. But if you look at what Messiah was actually talking about, he's talking about the Messianic assembly of renewed Israel. He's an Israelite. He's the Messiah of Israel. And the Messiah is the king of Israel. And therefore, he's talking about the kingdom government under Israel's Messiah. And that the gates of Hades would not prevail against that assembly. What are the gates of Hades as used here? Well, let's take a look. It's also called the Grotto of Pan. It's a very deep cave in the mountain, in Mount Hermon, at the bottom of the mountain, or near the bottom. And we have a quote from Josephus explaining it. He says, Panium, where is a top of a mountain that is raised to an immense height, and a dark cave opens itself within, which there is a horrible precipice that descends abruptly to a vast depth. It contains a mighty quantity of water, the utmost origin of Jordan. So this cave is so deep that Josephus says in another place that no matter how much cord they would lower down into the cave and into this water to see how deep it was, no matter how much cord they they lowered down, they never got to the bottom. So they believed that this was actually the gates to Hades or to the underworld. And they called it Setch. And they also called it the grotto or the cave of Pan. So seeing that Yeshua was right in this very area, when he names the gates of Hades, chances are he's not just making a general reference, but he's talking about this major feature of this area, this gates of Hades. Now, to see how big that cave really is, it's really quite quite huge. You see some water that actually comes forth from underneath that cave which actually does provide headwaters for the Jordan River and, of course, feeds the Sea of Galilee. Well, now we're going to see this Gates of Hades as it looked in the first century in the area where it's located. Here we have a painting of that area as it looked in the first century. Now, something that's interesting about this particular area, it was ruled by the Herods, the Edomites. Doesn't that just somehow make sense? And uh, we'll go from left to right. We have the Temple of Augustus. That's why the Herods ruled the area, because they built that Temple of Augustus there to show regard for Augustus, and therefore they were given this area to rule over. But the Temple of Augustus wasn't there originally. The gates of hell 
were there, however, because they're part of the terrain, right? This Grotto of Pan, which is right in behind where the Temple of Augustus was located. Right next to the gates of Hades, or the Grotto of Pan, we have the court of Pan and the Nymphs. And we've already discussed what that's about, right? And then next to that was installed the Temple of Zeus, who was supposed to be the king of the Greek and Roman gods. Another god was represented next to that in the court of Nemesis. And then we have the Temple of the Sacred Goats. Again, totally connected with this whole pan mythology, which is tightly connected with modern-day Satanism and Baphomet and everything related to that. This all goes back a very long time, really to the very beginning of false religion in the earth. And then, of course, down at the bottom right, we have the Temple of Pan and the Dancing Goats. So that is the area. I think it's kind of mind-blowing, really, when you look at it. It's just kind of amazing. So, this place at the gates of Hades includes this. The Edomite kingdom, right? And that represents the world. Remember, Yahweh told Jacob's mother, there are two nations in your belly, Jacob and Edom. Edom represents the kingdom of the world. The gates of Hades itself represents death itself. So it's a very big statement to say the gates of Hades will not prevail against the assembly, because that means even death itself cannot stand against the assembly of Yeshua Messiah. And that, my friends, is a guarantee of the resurrection. We have the Temple of Augustus, which is representative of the kingdom of Rome. Very significant because the book of Daniel talks about a reoccurrence of Rome in the last days. And then we have Pan, Zeus, and the gods, the rebel angelic rulers of this world in the spirit realm. That's who these Greek gods actually are, right? They are actually representations of these demonic spirits who set up another kingdom in order to rule the world. And of course, the scriptures talk about them as the world rulers in the heavenly places. And the really great news is that the Messianic Assembly of Israel under Messiah's kingdom will defeat all of them. When it's talking about the gates of Hades, 
will not prevail against it. It's not talking about the gates as defensive, holding back the forces of Hades. No. It is talking about the Messianic assembly assaulting those gates and tearing them down. I get worked up over that. Well, at this point, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, that whole message is so essential to every believer We all kind of feel like everybody must have always known this. But everybody didn't always know this. The elders of Israel, like the verses about the victorious Messiah, they like those verses. They like the idea of the victorious Messiah coming and leading Israel against every enemy and ruling the world. So that's what they talked about when they talked about the Messiah. This stuff about being rejected and suffering and dying, no. It's kind of like some of our mega churches. We just don't like talking about the negative stuff. You know, it kind of sends people away. And, oh, you know, you don't want to put a wet blanket over everybody. So they didn't like teaching that. They didn't see it, actually. You know, people, a lot of times, they only see what they want to see, right? And that's what happened with this. They were just seeing what they wanted to see the glorious Messiah. So when Yeshua started teaching his disciples about this, you have to realize he's talking about a whole new paradigm that they never heard of before. And let's be honest, it's hard for all of us to adapt to a new paradigm of thinking. So we shouldn't be surprised that They didn't get this right away. You know, it seems surprising to us today because we think, oh, Messiah told them they should just believe it. People don't operate that way. People build a certain scenario in their head, and once that's there, they really don't get another way of looking at things very easily. However, we do know from Scripture that the suffering servant is essential to the kingdom. And it was there all along in Scripture, Isaiah 53, and so many other places. But they focused on the other verses. Of course, modern believers would never do that, right? We would never, like, miss entire verses and just focus on a certain picture. Well, I have to tell you, That's what the Christian church has been doing for almost 2,000 years. They continue to do that now. Moving on. He spoke to them openly. 
What does that mean? It means, okay, you've got this other paradigm, but now it's time for me to tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you very openly and plainly exactly what's going to happen. Why is he doing this? He's preparing them. He knows that if it's a shock just hearing this, what is it going to be like looking at him on the cross? So he's starting to try and prepare them for what is ahead. But any idea about Messiah being rebuked and suffering and so on, Peter couldn't deal with that. And probably the rest of them couldn't. So Peter took him aside. And we don't know exactly what he said, but he might have said something like this. Well, you know, Yeshua, if you are saying things like this to people, it's going to really turn them off on your message. You know, you need to maybe focus on things that are more positive, like you have been doing. That was, that's really good. You know, like these parables, excellent people love those stories. They like it when you break the fish up and give it to everybody. Don't be talking about dying. Now, he might not have said it exactly like that. That's kind of how I pictured my head. Or he might have said, oh, nothing like that could happen to you. Not you. You're the Messiah. We've been taught the Messiah is going to be glorious. None of that stuff is going to happen to you. However, he said it. Messiah turned around and seeing his disciples. Now, why does it have that in there? It's telling us about that because Messiah is looking. What effect is this going to have on the rest of the disciples, what Peter is doing? So Messiah takes that into account, and he rebukes Peter pretty harshly, don't you think? Saying, get behind me, Satan. Was that too harsh? I don't think so. I think under the circumstances, with all the disciples watching all of this, Messiah needed to make a very strong statement. He said, for you have in mind not the things of Elohim, but the things of men. He's telling them, you've got the wrong paradigm in your head. Isn't that what he's saying? You've got the wrong paradigm in your head. You're thinking it's going to be all glorious and wonderful, and you don't have any room in your head for this portion of Yahweh's plan. You're not focusing on the things of Yahweh, his real purposes, what he's really doing. Yahweh is bigger than you. Good advice, isn't it, for all of us? Don't we want it to go easier? The Great Tribulation, are you kidding me? Hard things. Hard things. But you know what Messiah is saying here? The easy way is Satan's idea. The world's way 
is Satan's idea. Oh, no, you know, you need to do it the world's way. You need to do what I perceive is best for you. You'll always get that, and it'll be Satan talking through people you love. Doesn't mean they're bad people. You know, unfortunately, this happens all the time among people who even belong to Yeshua Messiah, that sometimes we sink into this where, you know, we are too sentimental. And Messiah knows this, and Satan knows this. Sometimes Satan uses what is best within us, where we care about somebody else, to actually do his work. So be careful about that. Well, Yeshua added more here. He spoke to all those disciples and the multitude that was following him at this point. He called the multitude to himself with his disciples, and he said to them, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Oh, wow. You know, I like that part of the message so that I could have favor and stuff, but what about this? Why don't they tell you about this? when they do the altar call, that you need to take up your cross and follow him. Why don't they tell you that? He told us, and he said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the good news will save it. Isn't that what we do? when we accept Yeshua as our Messiah and we are baptized or immersed. We go down under the water. Why are we doing that? Aren't we saying we are dead to our old life? We come up out of the water in our new life in Yeshua Messiah? Very simple. Whoever will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the good news will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what will a man give in exchange for his life? These are questions that a lot of people don't think about very much. You know, they're too busy trying to buy a new car, big house, and whatever else it is they're chasing after to really think about these verses. But I would say living at the end of the age as we are, we should think about these verses and what they really mean for us. He goes on, For whoever will be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man also will be ashamed of him. When he comes, that is, to rule the kingdom on earth in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Notice, uh, is seeing the kingdom and everything he's talking about here, right? Starting from the very beginning here and talking about the assembly overcoming 
the gates of hell, talking about himself as the Messiah, Messiah of what? The kingdom. Here again, talking about the future kingdom that will be established on the earth by the Messiah. It's all through these verses. This is the paradigm of Yeshua Messiah. He is seeing the kingdom. He's wanting his disciples to see the kingdom. He said to them, most certainly I tell you, there are some standing here who will in no way taste death until they see the kingdom of Elohim come with power. Well, right here in this verse, some people say, well, look at that right there. That proves he's not the Messiah because that didn't happen. The kingdom still hasn't come after all these years, so that can't be true. Well, they've got to read the rest of the story. It says, after six days, Yeshua took with him Peter, Jacob, and John and brought them up onto a high mountain privately by themselves. And he was changed into another form in front of them. His clothing became glistening, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah and Moses appeared to them, and they were talking with Yeshua. What is going on here? Well, Yeshua already talked about when he would come in glory, right? The kingdom in glory. So what the disciples are seeing here is what that looks like. Now, how did this happen? Is this an actual event? Are they somehow transferred into the future? through time, where they're witnessing these things? Are these things somehow happening as sort of a preview of when he does come in glory? Is this a vision? Is this a virtual reality vision? Yes. It's probably all those things. It's probably all those things. But it's nevertheless a very real experience for Peter, Jacob, and John. And what is the high mountain where this is happening? Pretty easy, isn't it? Mount Hermon. I think this is just so significant that Yeshua is revealed in glory with Moses and Elijah on Mount Hermon, the area that the angels that sinned sort of appropriated for themselves. This all by itself is telling us that Yeshua Messiah is far above every principality and power, and that They have no power over him, and they cannot stop him from doing the things that he is doing. And to me, that's incredibly encouraging. That is a wonderful thing to be able to see. Well, why is Moses and Elijah here? Moses, a figure that was used of Yahweh, 
to free the people from bondage to this world, to give them the Torah, the commandments of Yahweh. Who could really picture all of this better than Moses, right? He is such a central figure for the nation of Israel. This is totally about Israel in the kingdom. And Elijah. Elijah, what did he do? He was a messenger of the covenant. He belongs there with Moses because he reestablished the covenant with those who had slidden away from the covenant. And he represents that, as well as other things that we'll be discussing. And they are there with Messiah, and they're talking to Messiah. Think about that. What is that suggesting to the minds of these disciples? Israel. And a completion of Israel with the coming of Messiah in glory. And of course, as we look at this, he's in a different glorious form, whiter than the whitest snow. And I don't think any of us could actually fully imagine what these disciples saw. But it tells us, it says, Peter answered. Now, I don't remember Yeshua asking any questions, do you? But this is what Peter did. He was always answering, whether he was asked a question or not. Peter answered Yeshua, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For I didn't know what to say, for they were very afraid. So just think of that. Peter didn't know what to say, so he said this. I'm just pointing this out because isn't discretion better? If you don't know what to say, what do you do? Say nothing, right? And of course, he wasn't rebuked for this or anything, but I'm just pointing it out because I think we can learn something from that, that being the first one to speak up is not always a good idea. <laughs> you might look smarter sometimes just keeping your mouth shut. I've found that sometimes. So anyway, what, why is he suggesting making three tents? I think it's because he doesn't want this to end. I think he's thinking, well, you three, you seem to get along really good. Let's uh, keep this going. But of course, they didn't need tents. goes on and says, A cloud came overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they saw no one with them anymore except Yeshua only. That's, of course, what this is all about, isn't it? that voice from heaven. Did they have any doubt at this point as to who Yeshua was? 
you know, we talked recently about the Pharisees asking for a sign. They weren't going to get one. The disciples get one right here. And they didn't ask for it. Messiah is really thinking about them. He's really thinking about what's going to happen in the days ahead, how hard they're going to be tried. And he's giving them something they can really hang on to. As they were coming down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one what things they had seen until after the Son of God had risen from the dead. They kept this saying to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. So you see, even after seeing this, in their mind, they're still locked in this paradigm about the Messiah. They're still locked in this paradigm of the glorious Messiah. And why is he talking about rising from the dead? That means he's going to have to die, and that can't happen. They just can't allow that to themselves. That's kind of where their head is at. So what goes on now? Well, they asked him a question, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That is, first before the millennial kingdom, before Messiah comes in glory. That's what they're expecting to happen, and that's what they're expecting to happen with Elijah. But now, seen Messiah in his coming glory. And not only that, he says he's going to die. So, what is this about Elijah? Why do the scribes say that? You can see where there would be confusion. And what they're really doing is they're trying to deal with this paradigm in their head this false paradigm. They're trying to get it sorted out. That's what they're doing. He said to them, Elijah indeed comes first, that is, before the millennial kingdom, and restores all things. So this is interesting. Messiah is actually agreeing with the scribes about this that this is going to happen. Elijah is going to come before Messiah comes in glory in the millennial kingdom and restores all things. What are these all things that Elijah is to restore? Well, let's look at that. Malachi 3.1. It tells us, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And he's called the messenger of the covenant. Behold, he comes. The scribes, the elders, they understood that this was talking about Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Messiah. Further on in Malachi, it has a few other things connected here to Elijah. And there's more than this, but we don't have time to go into all of it. But Yahweh says, remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel, even statutes and ordinances. 
Well, that doesn't matter anymore because the Torah is done away, right? Wait a minute. Elijah's going to come, and the Torah is important, and it's for all Israel. And then it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. The great and terrible day of Yahweh. What is that? Well, this is mentioned in numerous places in Scripture, and it's always been understood as the final judgment. So this is what the scribes say. Elijah the prophet will come before the final judgment that he would teach the Torah, restore the Torah, and turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to the fathers. Now we'll talk about that more in a minute. Here we have the apocryphal book of Sirach. And this is what the scribes believed. This is from the Jewish era, and this was generally accepted as what the scribes believe. And it talks about Elijah there, says a number of different things, but it says to turn the heart of the father unto the son and to restore the tribes of Jacob. So do you think when Yeshua was talking about restoring all things, he could have remembered this verse, could have remembered what it said in Malachi, and realized or been telling them that he would restore the tribes of Jacob? Do you think that could be what he was saying? Well, and by the way, agreeing with the scribes? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of Yahweh comes. So here's just a recap of the things that we saw here that Elijah must restore. The covenant. He's called the messenger of the covenant. Restoring the covenant. And connected with Elijah, we're told to remember the Torah. So he restores understanding of and obedience to the Torah as Yahweh intends. And it says he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons and the hearts of the sons to their fathers. He restores the hearts of remnant Israel to their patriarchs, the patriarchs of Israel, the tribes of Israel, to restore tribal order. And this agrees with what the scribes saw this to mean, what Sirach says, that he would restore the tribes of Jacob. These are the things that Yeshua was agreeing with, that the scribes believed and taught that the scriptures teach. But then after saying that, 
he throws this in. How is it written about the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be despised? Well, that's true. That is written about the Son of Man, that he would suffer many things and be despised. We have this story about Elijah, that he's going to come before the great and terrible day, and that he's going to do this restoration work before Messiah comes in glory. So where does this thing fit in about the suffering Messiah? That's the question. That's the question, and that's the reason for the question. And he asked the question because there's only one obvious answer. Try to figure it out another way. You cannot. The answer is this. There has to be two comings of Messiah. First, he has to come unto suffering, and after that, unto completion of the kingdom. And so in saying that, the implication is, if there has to be two comings of Messiah, then there has to be two comings of the forerunner. The first coming unto suffering, which matches what happens with the first coming of Messiah, and after that, unto the restoration of all things, the completion under the glorious Messiah who would come to establish the millennium. And then he says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they have also done to him whatever they wanted to, even as it is written about him. And, of course, he's talking about John the Immersa here, the first coming of Elijah, or the first return, you might say, of Elijah as the forerunner of the suffering Messiah. So there has to be two comings of Messiah, and that would require two forerunners, two comings of a forerunner. So that's what he was talking about there. So he dealt with their false paradigm, and he answered questions about it to help them understand what was really going on. Now, we have such a wonderful example of this same thing, because through the second half of the 20th century, it was speculated that before the 70th anniversary of the state of Israel as a nation, all the things of Matthew chapter 24 would happen and Messiah would return. What is that if not a false paradigm? And can't you see that? Because it didn't happen. It has to be a false paradigm, right? And yet, we have so many books that came out telling us that it had to happen, first of all, in 40 years from the state of Israel first being founded. And then when that didn't happen, they said 70 years. And of course, now that hasn't happened. There's a false paradigm there. Do you think that paradigm needs to be broken? Do you think that it's all wrong? 
were the scribes all wrong? They just got some human thinking in there where they weren't seeing everything. Do you think that could happen regarding the state of Israel? I think this is an important concept for us to think about because we will encounter people whose faith will be shaken by the fact that this date has come and gone and the millennial kingdom isn't here. And it's interesting because you probably won't hear a great deal about it for a while. A lot like Yeshua's disciples, many Christians who had believed in that are going to be kind of in a quandary. They're going to be trying to figure out what's really going on, but they're not really going to want to talk about it very much because they really don't know what to say about it. However, this is going to become like a corrosive cancer to many people. And those who are enemies of the Scriptures, they're going to use this against people. This is all going to happen. So we need to understand as we look at this picture that not a new thing to have happen, that people have the wrong picture in their head. And you know, more and more is being restored in these days of a right understanding. And all of this is going to become very clear. It's all going to become very clear. And it's going to become clear in time. In other words, it's not going to be too late for us to find out what the truth is. We're going to learn all of this in time, and we have to trust that. We have to trust Messiah just as he chose exactly the right time and place to begin revealing this truth about himself and about the kingdom to his disciples. He is doing the same for us and bringing us to a place where we can understand what is really going on here in these last days and what the truth is about these prophecies. And it makes the time we're living in a very exciting time as he reveals these truths. So the disciples, they came to see the kingdom. And what about you? What about me? As we follow Messiah, seeing more of the kingdom. You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Some of the scripture verses referenced in today's program are Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 8 Deuteronomy chapter 3 verse 11 through verse 13 Isaiah 13 verse 19 through verse 21 Revelation chapter 18 verse 2 Genesis chapter 6 verse 2 Matthew chapter 16 verse 17 
through verse 19, Isaiah 53, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Malachi chapter 4, verse 4 through verse 6. Some of the other references are Sirach 48, verse 1, Sirach 48, verse 10 through verse 11, Enoch chapter 6 and chapter 7, and Josephus, Wars of the Jews, Book 1, Chapter 21, Section 3. Further teachings and study materials on the word ecclesia, translated from the Septuagint as assembly in the Old Testament, but as church in the New Testament, the believing assembly of Israel in the first century, the way that believing Gentiles were grafted into the believing assembly of Israel in the first century, the rock on which the assembly was built and on which the restored assembly of Israel is being built today, the Daniel Seminar, the Fallen Angels, Mount Hermon, Messiah in Biblical Prophecy, Elijah in Biblical Prophecy, End Time Prophecy, the timing of biblical prophecy, the final judgment, and seeing the kingdom, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! The Christian church system has claimed that Israel is cast off and done away with. However, Jeremiah 31, 35-37 says, Thus says Yahweh, Who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, If heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. The sun is still here and the sea still roars, and the stars still shine. Learn how Yahweh's nation Israel is literally 
written in the stars as a permanent testimony of our God's commitment to His covenant with Israel. Visit our community site, Zion Tabernacle, and sign up as a free member to view Eliyahu Ben David's seminar entitled, One Nation Written in the Stars. One Nation Written in the Stars. Now available free of charge as part of Zion Fast Track, our introductory video course. Zion Fast Track will give you the big picture of what God is doing with his remnant nation in this very generation. To sign up and learn more about what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to zion.org and click join us. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. Then click join us. Yes, our God is mighty. 